0: Want to avoid that hellish feeling that you feel whenever you're in the underworld for a period of time and your skin dries up? Well, worry no more, because today's episode is brought to you by Romer Skincare. Based out of Chicago, Romer launched a work from home clean skincare line that covers all your skin needs with three easy to follow steps. Why should you check them out? Well, simple ingredients and effective results for one thing. A perfect upgrade if you're washing your face with a bar of soap or that drugstore face wash. Right now, Romer Skincare is offering our listeners 15% off and a gift with your first purchase by using the code LISTENER15. That's code LISTENER15 on their website, roamerskincare.com. Impress your partner and get happy skin, far happier than the skin we have down here. I'm telling you, this heat does nothing for me. And
1: now, brace yourself. This is Teller Hell. day of the month of October, in an early year of a decade not too long before our own, the hellish race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence. And this terrifying enemy surfaced, as most often do, in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of time slots.
0: No story has seen a stranger trajectory in any medium than the story of Little Shop of Horrors. Originally inspired by short stories in literature such as John Collier's Green Thoughts, Arthur C. Clarke's Reluctant Orchid, and H.G. Wells' Flowering of the Strange Orchid, the first motion picture adaptation of the story was a low-budget, Roger Corman-directed horror movie written by Charles B. Griffith, one which is chiefly responsible for being one of Jack Nicholson's first major, yet minor, movie roles. The movie was about as successful as B-movies in the early 1960s could get, which is to say, not that much, but still gained cult icon status over time. So much so that in 1982, a pair of up-and-coming young Broadway tunesmiths named Alan Menken and Howard Ashman put together an off-Broadway musical based loosely on Corman's movie. Slowly but surely, it became a phenomenon both on Broadway and off for the next five years. So much so that one of the musical's co-producers, an up-and-coming movie magnate and music industry scion named David Geffen, decided to turn the show into a movie through a series of deals that we don't have time To get into, the green light was eventually lit for the big green mother from outer space to get the big screen treatment, complete with an all star cast and the same songs from the show with hooks for days.
1: See Seymour, feed me all night long. Then you
0: go
2: downtown
1: where the folks are broke. You go downtown.
0: Despite everything it had going go for it. Down. The movie was only a modest hit when it was released in 1986, making roughly $39 million or $91 million when adjusted for 2020 inflation, while its subsequent soundtrack turned out to fare just as well. What's more, since this was not only a modest hit in the eyes of Hollywood, but it also looked to be an adaptation of a single, self-contained story, any chance of there being a sequel or follow-up to the movie was all but an impossibility that all parties involved seemed to be content with. Or at least that would have been the case, were it not for the fact that the movie wound up being a more colossal hit on the ever-expanding home video market of 1987. Suddenly, Warner Brothers, the studio that produced the movie, found itself with a cash cow that it was looking to milk for all it's worth. But there was a problem. The aforementioned fact that this was a self-contained story, and that writers Mencken and Ashman not only didn't want to follow up to it, but also had taken their talents over to Disney by that point. So, what was Warner to do? Well, there's always television. But again, the original was a self-contained story, and depending on which version of the movie you watch, either the plant dies at the end, or the plant takes over the world after eating everybody. How could anything get a follow-up after that? When in doubt, you don't go forward in time to continue a story. Sometimes you have to go backwards in order to move forward. Unfortunately, this little shop of horrors went so far
1: backwards that it wound up triggering the de-aging process. One that doesn't require selling a soul. Intelli-Hell.
0: Although the movie-musical version of Little Shop of Horrors wound up becoming a hit on home video, and although it became highly profitable for Warner Brothers, it wasn't exactly high on their list of priorities to do anything spin-off related in 1987, especially because the company was on the verge of launching a series of tentpole blockbuster franchises that would catapult the company to the top of their game for the rest of the 1980s. The same goes for their television division, who during the same time was about to acquire a blue chip of the industry. Lorimar Telepictures, the same company that made hits from The Waltons in Dallas to Perfect Strangers in Full House, became the latest jewel in their crown of their Burbank headquarters, to say nothing of their eventual merger with Time Publishing Incorporated near the end of the decade. So with all of these successes under their belt, perhaps Warner Brothers didn't need to do a spin-off or a sequel to Little Shop of Horrors. And they didn't. Sorry to throw a curveball there, but yes, it's true. Warner Brothers has absolutely nothing to do with what we're about to look at, even though it was their hit movie that helped spawn things. Somebody who is involved, however, is an up-and-coming media entrepreneur named Chaim Saban. The tale of Chaim Saban and the production company he built is a story in itself the Cliff Notes version. Seeing his first successes as a musician and music producer in the Middle East, Saban and his partner Shuki Levy formed a TV production company in 1980. Through a series of acquisitions of international properties, Saban Entertainment was one of several production companies of the 80s that made most of its money through children's programming. And that sound means we're about to go into uncharted territory. For the first time ever in Telehell, we're going to be going after a show that's geared towards a young audience. Which means now I get to do this.
3: And I know what you're thinking, you say, Jesus, he's not going to attack children, is
0: he? Yes, he is. <laughs> he's going to attack children. But yes, even kids programming is not immune from our flames. But I digress. Saban would make a series of fortuitous partnerships at the turn of a decade. For this story, the partnerships would be between 20th Century Fox Television, Marvel Entertainment Group, and French TV network Le Cinq. From France?
2: France is also famous for the French Revolution.
0: Uh, yeah. Anyway, all three companies would team up to produce this animated spin-off of the movie. But here's the twist. It wasn't exactly going to be the 1986 movie that they would be spinning off, even though there would be songs scattered throughout each episode. Instead, they went straight to the source of the source material for a little help. Wasn't, wasn't there a movie that took only two days to make? Oh yes, Little
3: Shop of Horrors. Two days of <laughs> a little bit of shooting <laughs> in a night. It was done almost bed. as a joke.
0: Roger Corman's involvement in both the stage musical and the movie musical was next to nothing. In fact, the 1960 movie's screenwriter, Charles Griffith, actually sued for improper use of characters during production of the stage show. Although we're not 100% certain what the terms of the suit was, the fact that Griffith and Corman wound up getting a based-on credit for any use in future productions, including future Broadway revivals, showed that any legality was short-lived. Which is fortunate, because Saban and Fox Kids reached out to Corman for input on this new series in a consultant role. Unfortunately, because of just how popular the movie and the musical was, Fox executives were expecting more of the same from this new enterprise. One problem though, how do you take material like this? You don't know what
3: you're looking at but that's tough titty, kid.
0: And tone it down for a young audience, especially for those who can't even drive yet. Well, if you remember the lessons learned from the Clerks sitcom pilot, you're pretty much forced into that corner if you're gonna be on network television. And since this is shaping to be something that airs on Saturday mornings, there's really only one way to make that happen. The notion of taking an existing brand and de-aging it for a younger audience wasn't exactly a new idea. As early as the 1960s, a number of shows that saw success in adult venues wound up seeing a junior counterpart take place during the breakfast hour. Some ideas worked, like the one that you're hearing here, others, well...
1: The Fox. His doggy name Mr. Cool and the Good Group.
4: One flaky time machine
0: and a fugitive chick- Let's just say they'll have their day here soon. And yes, that means you can do the thing. <laughs> In the case of Little Shop of Horrors, deaging the characters was not only a necessary thing to do in order to please a child audience, but as we said, the original, the musical, and the movie musical were all the same self-contained story with no follow-up in mind. In other words, this was to be a prequel of sorts to all of that. Oh sure, we still had your main characters, but because this was being handled with kid gloves, a few things had to change in order for things to fit properly. You, of course, had Seymour Krelborn, who even at a young age was still a colossal dork who liked dorky things and pined after Audrey, who was also in this show. Granted, she is not sporting a platinum blonde bob like Ellen Green did, but again, she's just a kid here. She probably didn't discover hair dye yet. Flower shop owner Mr. Mushnick is here too, and as we'll find out, this character is probably as close to the original material as we'll get here. Here now is where we deviate from the default, starting with the show's bully, named Payne Driller, a braced-faced youth whom the series decided would take the place of the movie's dentist character, whether it be Corman's dentist drilling Jack Nicholson's mouth or Steve Martin doing this to Bill Murray. Ah! The other liberty that was taken was how the show treated the plant. No longer called Audrey 2, it was instead given the name Junior. And because this was a kid's cartoon, naturally we couldn't see the plant eating any human beings. So instead of being bloodthirsty, the producers of the show decided to give the plant the ability to hypnotize people. And before you call me out on how that didn't happen in the musical, it did happen in Corman's original 1960 movie. Now you will do as I say.
5: Yes, master. You will go out and find me some food. Yes, master.
0: Something that didn't happen in either movie, however, was making the plant telekinetic and moving things with its mind. Anything to keep the kids interested in watching, I guess. To help bring all of this to life, Fox recruited veteran cartoon writer Mark Edward Edens as the show's developer, while conceptual artist Ellen Levy was tapped to take on the show's overall design. And if you see her Wikipedia entry, you'll understand before we go any further why this was one of a handful of strange choices the show made. Ones that we'll cover... After the break.
1: Now, the most menacing musical comedy ever to paint the silver screen, Reed. Little shop of horrors. Where did you get such a weird plant? thrilled <laughs> to the romance.
3: Will you marry me? Yes, sure. Witness the drama. you You have a talent for causing
5: pain. I've been saving all months for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. Feed me,
4: clown! Beat me now!
1: Savor the spectacle of the first plant in motion picture history ever to sing for its supper. Starring Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Vincent Gardinia, with a special appearance by Steve Martin, James Belushi, John Candy,
3: and Phil Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors.
0: Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives. Dave's Archives is the premier spot on YouTube where you can get your vintage TV fix, including old commercials and original shows covering classic TV and other TV-related pop culture. Here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you.
3: Today, millions of Miracle Grow gardeners are getting wonderful results with this amazing invention, the Miracle Grow No Clog Garden Feeder. It's the fastest, easiest feeder I've ever used. Well, now you can use it to feed your lawn, because now there's Miracle Grow lawn food. It makes lawn care so easy. Just drop in and spray on. You'll feed your whole lawn in minutes. You'll see lush green results in days. Stern's Miracle Grow lawn food for a Miracle Grow lawn you'll be proud of.
0: Want to check out the rest of it? Go to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can visit them on Facebook. Again, search Dave's Archives. And now, back to my punishment for the week. September 7th, 1991. Monica Seles beats Martina Navitrilova in the U.S. Open. Actor Harry Hamlin marries Nicolette Sheridan for exactly one year. And at 10 a.m., 9 a.m. Central, the Fox Kids Network reopens the doors on a little little shop. Oh, right, I almost forgot. This was a show that aired in the early 1990s, before the rest of the decade had a proper identity. And based on all the Day Glow color palettes and the use of New jack swing in most soundtracks, the first few years of the 90s was really leftover residue of the 1980s. So while this title sequence is indeed a product of its time, it's also going to become immediately outdated the second Kurt Cobain lays down the most memorable guitar riff in history just a few months later. So in the show's first episode, titled Bad Seed, we see young Seymour establishing things. Uh,
2: I'm Seymour Krelborn, and I've spent 13 years trying to become a nerd. You see, my problem is, I've got everything it takes to be a nerd, except brains.
0: In other words, you're a future viewer of the Big Bang Theory. Seymour <laughs> continues. As he grabs his lunch for school, we see... Wait, who the hell is this?
2: I'm going to school now, Mom. Don't share your wheat germ with all the other kids. They might have other germs. Mom packs health food in my lunchbox.
0: Seymour has a mom? I mean, granted, we all have to be birthed by somebody, but wasn't this the character who famously sung this line? I started life as an orphan, child of the street, here on Skid Row. Nah, I'm probably reading too much into this. Besides, it's Roger Corman who's consulting here, and his version had a mother for Seymour. Albeit the overbearing type.
2: Have you no sympathy for your poor mother? Laughing at her and mocking her realness and she's got one foot in the grave?
0: Oh, I didn't mean it.
2: Oh, you never mean it. Oh, come on, look at my tongue.
0: But thankfully, we don't see her again after that shot anyway. So let's just consider that an anomaly. Young Seymour continues his lament.
2: I like school.
1: I
0: first met Audrey Mushnick. Wait, 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 wait.
1: Say what now? Audrey Mushnick.
0: Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the real Audrey famously sing this line? Double-checking the Corman version, while it was heavily implied that Audrey's supposed to be Mushnick's daughter, her last name in that version is actually Folquart and she has dark hair, unlike musical Audrey's Platinum Bob. But here the show decided to make her not only have dark hair, but also be the daughter to Mr. Mushnick, even though Seymour was the adopted son of Mr. Mushnick in the musical, but he has a mom in this show, and... Oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. I'm sorry, but this first two minutes of the show highlighted what's wrong with taking liberties with source material sometimes. Mainly, the fact that we already have durable source material to compare it to. Add the fact that one of the originators of said source material is involved in the show's production, and the end product winds up making even less sense. And we haven't even reached the giant talking plant yet. Thankfully, there's only up to go from here, as Seymour continues setting the scene.
2: Are you alright? It looked like you weren't breathing. She doesn't even know I'm alive. If only there was some way to make her notice me!
0: Okay, I'll give them a point there, since that's basically a key plot point in both movies. So, yay for them. Following a dream sequence where Seymour is a caveman who discovers his talking plants... Oh.
2: Ooga Booga! Ah!
0: ...which is less nonsensical than it sounds, we then get to know the inner workings of the flower shop.
2: I got a job at Mr. Mushnick's flower shop. Mr. Mushnick is Audrey's father. Ever since Audrey was 12, she's wanted to be a fireman. Timor! Stop overwatering the flowers, Timor! Sorry, Mr. Moschnick.
0: And once again, in spite of the glaring genetic error, I have to give the show credit again. Instead of having Audrey become a ditzy damsel in distress who fears she won't meet a nice guy on Skid Row, the show took it upon itself to make this version of Audrey a more independent and positive role model for girls who has a career on her mind instead of a man. At the same time, however, I kind of have to wonder what happened between childhood and adulthood to give Audrey such a major shift in personality, and then I have to remind myself that I'm reading way too much into a show for kids. The stuff that happens in the flower shop is still comparable to the movies. Seymour screws something up, Mushna gives him a hard time about it. From there, we see young Seymour deal with his non-dentist dental bully in typical cartoon fashion.
2: Then one morning, my whole... Changed. It got worse. Sorry,
4: Seymour. I didn't see you standing there. I hope I didn't get your homework
0: wet. <laughs> <sighs> Been there. Believe me. Unfortunately, through a stroke of luck, the bully flings Seymour into a pile of trash, which then gets transported to the city dump. After surviving a fall that even Wiley e. Coyote would find implausible, it's at the bottom of a trash hole where Seymour comes across his MacGuffin for the series.
2: Just my luck, I landed on a rock. It looks like a fossilized seed. I'd better save it for my rock collection. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Seymour
0: takes the seed to school with him, where it's already grown into a baby-sized Audrey. T- I mean, Junior. We lather, rinse, repeat our antics with a bully. Only this time...
4: Hand over the sandwich, Quailborn. Ow! Uh, uh, uh. Trying to
2: booby-grab me, huh? I'm innocent!
0: Okay, so Seymour isn't getting treated better, but in comparison to the previous scenes, any improvement is a marked one. Afterwards, we cut to Mr. Mushnick lamenting on how much of a failure he is, and in another point of credit, the show does what the other movies don't. They give Mushnick a song.
3: My business is a bust.
0: Business, what a
3: joke. I've got no business.
0: That's why I'm going broke.
3: I'm
0: going broke. We should also probably point out that because this is a Saban production, and since Chaim Saban has roots in music, he and Shuki Levy were in charge of the music on all of their shows, both lyrical and incidental. Granted, not all of them are winners, but anybody who puts their energy into putting a show together and still have time to do the music for it is one hell of an industry mover and shaker. Unfortunately, all the moving and shaking doesn't do squat to the plot, as we get to know the plant a little more, including the requisite use of the line...
3: Feed me! Yo, feed me! Hello, pizza place! I'll take a large pizza, triple pepperoni, maybe some anchovies, and, uh, hold of veggies.
0: I would nitpick as to how the plant is able to use a telephone, but then I remember this scene.
1: Seymour! No, it ain't Seymour! <laughs> it's me!
0: So, at another point in the show's favor. In a plot twist Stevie Wonder could see coming from miles away, the pizza is delivered by our head antagonist, who contemplates robbing the flower shop, as one does when they're a kid, right? But just as he's about to, Flora Ex Machina springs into action.
4: What are you doing here? So you're the black breath who ordered the pizza. <laughs> Come on, crow bun. Up.
0: Or he would if he actually did anything of use. And only after he leaves and threatens to rob the place again tomorrow, the plant formally introduces itself. I've been
3: watching you all day. And was it ever born? But I got a proposition for you. I'm busting out of this overgrown meat locker tomorrow. Getting my little green bud back where it belongs. You give me a hand getting home and maybe a couple of legs. And I'll give you the thing you want
0: most in the world.
2: Passing grade in science.
0: And again, the show ports a key plot point from the movies correctly. Give her take a couple of details. In the movies and the musical, the plant wants to give Seymour a one-way ticket out of Skid Row by not only improving his chances with Audrey, but also making him become famous. At a price. The price being giving the plant more people to eat. Here, once again, because it's a kids' show, obviously things had to be toned down a little. But the tit-for-tat dynamic is still in play, so no harm, no foul there. And since we're halfway through the episode, aside from some glaring errors and continuity, I'm honestly not sure what the fuss is about. At least, not yet. Huh. Wonder what that sound is. Uh, Probably nothing. Act 2 begins with Mushnik calling out Seymour on the pizza that was ordered last night.
3: So now you're ordering pizzas and leaving me to pay for them? This time you've gone too far, Seymour. I want you out of here by tomorrow morning. When I was his age, we never ate Hazarayan pizza
0: like that. And again, this is one aspect from the movies that the show gets down cold. Mushnick was a jerk back then, and he's still a jerk here. Unfortunately, people don't tune into cartoons to see jerks. Unless, of course, they're on in prime time. Bite my shiny metal ass. Moving on, Junior tries to stoke the fires of a non-existent passion between Seymour and Audrey.
3: I'll just plant the seed of an idea in her head. Seymour's the coolest non-green dude in the world.
4: I get had no- Anybody ever told you you're the coolest non-green dude in the world?
0: So now, Seymour and not Steve Martin become buddies, whether Seymour likes it or not.
2: Bringing your friend along is really cool, dude! Actually, it wasn't my idea.
0: Well, that was quick. Maybe now we can focus on how Seymour is gonna get out of trouble with Mr. Mushnick, or...
3: Ain't bad. It's a crime of disgrace. You got stone for ground. Walls in your face.
0: Have another musical number, but this time have a soon-to-be outdated genre as its backbeat. On the plus side, at least it's not Vanilla Ice. After that distraction, Seymour helps the plan try to find his way home. But because this is the first episode of the series, there needs to be a reason to go back to the shop.
3: Home? Sweet? Well, My home! There's no place like home. Not anymore, there isn't. Just a
2: bunch of stumps where there used to be trees. The sign says the forest is 200 million years old. You must have been lying dormant all that time, Junior.
3: 200 million years? No wonder my mouth tasted like root
0: rot. And that story is over, and still with six minutes left to go. You know, it wouldn't hurt them if they flushed things out a little bit more, but instead, we now have several minutes of padding to deal with. It's like some horrible nightmare. Wake me up. Or at least if I'm right.
2: It's just vegetable
0: soup. We still have yet to figure out how Seymour makes peace with Mr. Mushnick, or how he deals with his bully. And now, with less than three minutes in the show, I have a feeling we're gonna get a severe case of story diarrhea. Something that happens when too much tries to get resolved in too soon a time frame. How does that go?
3: Wake up! It's time to get busy, rise up! Realize your reality. People been running things far too long. If you think you gotta take it, brothers and sisters, you're wrong. Isaiah's Tazenia's, all your flora in between.
0: And there goes the show trying to be hip again. Chances are, if the show premiered just a year later, everybody would be wearing flannel shirts, drinking coffee, and trying to imitate Eddie Vedder's At least that's how I think he sounds. All this new Jack stuff is doing is preventing the show from becoming timeless, and instead turning it into a bizarre time capsule. Nevertheless, Junior's rap does enough to bring the flowers in the shop back to bloom.
3: Junior! What are you doing? Trying to bring back the good old days when plants were plants, and you were lunch. We're through being the weak link in the food chain, got that?
0: And as it turns out, this is exactly the deus ex machina Mr. Mushnik needed to get back on his feet again and improve Seymour's chances with Audrey.
2: Maybe we could put out a fire together sometime. Uh She wants to put out a fire with me?
0: Sounds like a hot date? But wait, I hear you ask. What about the bully? I bet you're all dying to find out.
2: I guess we all have to face a few challenges in life. Hand
0: over
4: that milk money, (laughs) point.
0: Open! Somebody took my field! Wonder who? Yay! Anti-climax! Yay! the rest of the episodes are pretty much one and the same. Seymour needs help with something, he looks to the plant for advice, Mushnik is broke, Audrey is oblivious though goal-oriented, the bully is a dick, and the same gardening process repeats itself for all 13 episodes that this aired, ultimately getting its leaves pruned for good in November of 1991 due to bad ratings. Maybe if they added a late 50s, early 60s motif to the music, like they did with the stage show, it might have been more palatable. But this was probably one of those cases where they should have left well enough alone. So, how many bags of fertilizer does Little Shop get planted in the soil of teleheld? Let's speed the plow through our nine circles.
1: Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery.
0: Adaptations of anything is a tricky process. Even trickier when it comes to the de-aging of characters. While I have to give it credit for getting some of the details right, there were still many details that the show got wrong. Making Audrey Mr. Mushnick's daughter, for instance. Giving Seymour a parent, having the plant not eat humans, etc. Granted, that last one was a direct result of this being a kid's show, but I saw the 86 movie when I was a kid. I loved it. Seeing the inverse of that in any form of media just made me confused at that age, especially since I was already exposed to a far more superior product. The cartoon tried, but it still felt like a ripoff of something that raised the bar in so many ways. So in this case, I gotta dock it for fraud! Plus the fact that they're playing fast and loose with revisionist history, even though they sought out Roger Corman's advice on it, made the project feel like heresy to the original product. But other than that, in spite of how short-lived it was, I see a little shop as nothing more than an innocent cartoon that feels dated as hell in a number of places. Otherwise, I really don't see any further flaws with it. Excuse me, aren't you forgetting something?
5: Uh, who are you, and why are you interrupting my conclusion? Dr. Johann Faust, and I wish I lived long enough to sue whoever turned my life story into an advertisement for weed killer. Care to be a little more specific? I was one of the first figures in literature who sold his soul to Mephistopheles, though you may know him better as your boss. I sold my soul in an effort to achieve some sort of level of success and opulence in my life. Who, boy, was that a mistake. Sure, life was good for about 16 years after I did it, but then I got bored with everything. I tried to call it off, but Mr. Hornhead wouldn't let me. The deal lasted 24 years, And to this day, they're still trying to clean up the guts that splatter the walls from my old house. Ugh, how appetizing. Let that be a lesson to anyone who sells their soul. Read the fine print first. Otherwise, your story winds up with dozens of adaptations and zero creative input. Or residuals. But what does this have to do with Little Shop of Horrors? You pretty much telegraphed the point a moment ago. Their story, give or take a detail or two, is virtually the same as my story. A man is willing to go to great lengths to seek the rewards of life that he desperately lacks, but he ultimately winds up paying a hefty price for Green to do so. At the end of the 1960 movie and the director's cut of the 86 movie, Seymour winds up paying the price of his newfound fame and loses everything he's earned by getting eaten by the plant at the end. The fact that they're doing that same story but with Kinder as the main characters is just plain unsettling. So do yourself a favor before closing the book on this show. If you're really going to put it through nine circles of hell, do it right. Whether the people in the show are children or not. Seymour agrees to go through with this because of his pined affections for Audrey. Even though he's just a kid here, it still counts as a form of lust. Which is, in itself, a derivative of what his ambitions were in the movie and musical. To have a more fulfilling life, even if it means he has to be greedy in order to attain it in spite of his intentions. To say nothing of the ravenous nature of the plant, consuming everything in sight until it becomes something no man could control, marking it for gluttony. Sorry to have interjected, but whenever I hear tales of people sacrificing themselves for a shot at success, my ears are often ringing. Which, coincidentally, happened to me when it came time to pay up. No squeegee in the world would help clean up that mess. Little Shop earns five out of nine circles
0: of telehell, And, once again, I find a show that's at its worst, a mere annoyance with a lot of minor problems attached to it, no pun intended since it was a kid's show and there are minors in the show. And yet, it's still not enough to drag me out of hell. I kinda wonder if I'm ever gonna find that one show that will free me from my own personal skid row. After all... Even a damned soul has dreams someone show me we're sorry
1: but due to the fact that we've already exceeded the number of clips from little shop of horrors that we could use in this episode we are unable to present this finale as it was intended a shame really as it was going to be our narrators worldwide singing debut our budget is so minuscule that we could only afford exactly four words in the song without bleeding ourselves through the nose financially and you've already just heard the first three hell that german voice we hired to play dr faust called enough to cancel our christmas party then again i can only imagine all the other christmas parties being canceled around the world this year due to quote unforeseen circumstances unquote it sucks but what are you gonna do since we don't have a patreon page yet we now resume with the remainder of this performance already in progress (laughs)
0: Next time on Telehell, one of the many, many, many mistakes made by an otherwise durable TV performer. I'm Mr. Rodriguez, and I am your neighbor. Oh my god. If you have one,
3: pray to him for intelligence. <laughs> Until then.
1: If it's not in Telehel, it's not worth a
0: damn. The part of Dr. Johann Faust was played by Joe Blevins of These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast. Listen to that show wherever fine podcasts can be streamed. The part of our Disclaimer Guy was played by Rob Maurer. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. Not unlike certain viruses, tele is everywhere now. In addition to Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, we can also be heard on Google Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app. Of course, we can also be heard in a number of other places just by Googling Telehell. And don't forget to like, comment, rate,
1: subscribe, and follow our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at tele Podcast.